Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and I hope you've had a great week. This week I've got a special guest, well another special guest. Uh, her name is Sally Ann Upton and if that name rings a bell it's probably because she's an actor and you might have seen her in some shows, probably Neighbours or Wentworth. She's also a nurse and a marriage celebrant. Now the reason I got Sally Ann on is because reading through her bio she is an inspirational lady who has done so many things and I think that's a really positive thing for you, the listeners, to hear. So, hello, Sally Ann. How are you? Oh, Daniel, thank you so much. And I'm really happy to be on this wonderful podcast. Spreading positivity is a good thing in this climate. Oh, it definitely is, isn't it? And I mean, look, the last two years with COVID have been quite stressful on everybody. And um, it's good that we could, well, it's great that you could give me the time to come on because, yeah, as I just said before, you've, you've achieved so many things and I think that's a really positive thing. So how about we start on your early life? Because I, I said to you just before we started, I found out that you arrived as a 10-pound palmer. I didn't even know you were British or British Australian. Yes. No, yeah, I was born in Yorkshire. Oh, Yorkshire. Um, yeah, in Gisborough. Um hospital but uh, yeah I grew up for my first um you know up until the age of about six in in uh Yorkshire and then um we came out to Australia on the 10 pound tourist scheme my dad was he went to the uh, second world war when he was um well he lied about his age to be fair and as you would imagine he went through a lot in the war and he got mustard gassed and everything like that. Oh, wow. So he was always unwell yeah. and always poorly in the gut and in the lungs. And my mum knew that if he we stayed in England with all the winters, yeah. his time on the planet would be shorter. So she applied for when the 10 pound tourist scheme adverts or whatever, yeah. I don't know how it was. I think it was in the print. Yeah, probably. Fair. It was before TVs and stuff. Um, uh, she noticed that and so she applied and it was rather Canada or Australia and we were all set to go to Canada but then my dad got really ill and I only just found this out recently talking to my mum who's 94. Wow. Um, she said, no, we couldn't go to Canada because Dad was ill. So the next boat was to Australia and that's how random it was. It was wow. rather Canada. Or Australia, so I could have been brought up in Canada. It's just bonkers to think that you know, just a decision or yeah. a circumstance happens in your life that changes your direction of life. Definitely. You know? Well, yeah. look, I said to you before we started, I actually came out when I was eleven to Australia with my parents, and it was as not because dad was sick, but he was a, a jobbing builder. And between usually October and February, because you had snow or it was so cold. He wasn't able to work. So for those four months, there'd be no money coming in. So he just said, look, that's it. Let's go to Australia. And yeah. I don't know what my life would have been like if I'd stayed in the UK, but I'm so glad we came to Australia. It's And what a brave choice for them to make because my parents were in their 30s, three kids. My granddad was 75. He migrated out with us. He had to pay wow. his own £10. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's prior to Facebook, 
phones yeah. and it, like to, uh, to go to a phone box was big and yeah. to receive it was all in telegrams those days and there was nobody here except a vague uncle who wasn't really an uncle who was a friend of a friend of a friend yeah and for them to leave england and it, we left mid winter and we landed in australia mid summer in beautiful tropical paradise of wyala you know yeah. and it's kind of like <laughs> my dad came out on um, he was sponsored out by bhp yep and the brochures were of picket fences and beautiful houses, which we saw when we landed first. Our first port of call was in Fremantle, yep. and we went on a bus tour and we saw all the houses thinking this is going to be fantastic. And then we landed in um, Melbourne and we had a day trip up to the Dandenongs to fill in time to get on the bus to go to Adelaide. Yeah. And then we got off in Adelaide and it was just a hot box. Yeah, And then when we got on the bus, my mum actually asked the bus driver, how long is it till we get to Wyala? And his response was, shut your neck, love. You've got 250 miles and you'll know it when you see it. And when she got off the bus, my mum gasped in horror and swallowed her first fly, and that was true. And we were in those Goma pile huts because our house hadn't been finished. It was still being built on the outskirts of Wyala. Yeah. And um, so that's where we stayed for four and a half years. And we moved from one side of Wyala to the other. And because our house was the same side, we rolled up the new nylon teal carpet and it fitted in the new house perfectly because it was the same (laughs) side. I mean, so that's how... It was for us kids. It was a massive adventure, but for my mum and dad, it was extraordinarily brave. Yeah, I can't get my head around how you would do that. Like, you look at now, even if you want to go on a family picnic, how much you've got to pack in a car just yeah. for one kid. Yeah, and there they are. They just wrapped us all up, chucked us on a boat, and off we went. And four and a half weeks later, we land in another country. And our lives change, you know. Well, look, I had, a, I had a similar um, feeling when we arrived here because just before we left the UK, they were doing an Australian film special on BBC Two and Mum said, oh, you've got to stay up and watch this show. It's called Storm Boy. So I watched Storm Boy and I thought that was what I was coming to. So I was quite <laughs> happy when I got here and I saw houses because I thought I might be living near the beach. <laughs> How old were you when you came out? Eleven. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's for us. It's an adventure, but for my parents, it was extraordinarily tricky. And my dad hated it because, right. but he was on a contract for four and a half years, and he kept saying, "Soon as soon as the contract's up, we're going home. We're going home." But we met this fabulous family, um, the Dugdales, on the ship on the first night, and Katrina. Yep. Um, has been my buddy friend ever since. She's my soulmate, and wow. we met when we were six. And Ethel had gone to Sydney to Bondi. So she said, look, George, before you go back, you've got to come on a trip to Sydney because this is what Australia is about. Yeah. And, of course, we did. We went on a, a road trip in the heat yep. to Sydney in the car, in the And hold. there's no air conditioning back then. No air conditioning. You <laughs> had to wait for the ice to melt. And we literally went in the heat wave. Yeah. I remember getting into Renmark. 
and we're going into the pub where the family had to go around the corner to the lounge. Yeah. She couldn't walk through the bar those those days. Oh, yeah. And the guy on the front veranda in Remark, real Aussie, he went, as my dad passed, he said, are you trying to kill you, Fem? you trying to kill him? And my dad sort of ushered us inside and then came out and said to him, what are you talking about? And he said, you're travelling in the heat of the day. Travel, travel first thing in the morning, 4 till 11, then stop somewhere, rest, and then set off at 4 till 8. Yeah. And my dad said, well, I don't know where I'm going and it's I don't want to travel in the dark. He said, well, it's a pretty straight road, you know, <laughs> just follow the road. And so that's what my dad did and it actually saved our lives because we, we got really badly um, heat. My mum did heat stroke right. in the car and saw mirages and everything. But when we got to Bondi, that's when our my dad went, oh, this is fabulous. So we yeah. went back to Wyala and within a year my dad got a job in the post office, um, you know, in collecting mail. Yep. And so that's that's what happened, and, and our lives changed completely for the better then. Um, yeah, because, look, even when we came here when I was 11, I mean, Melbourne City was quite built up, but in the suburbs outside of Melbourne where we grew up, you know, there was you never had a second car parked out on the street. You only ever had one car. The shopping centres were small, but you could get in and get your shopping and get out. And if you look at it now, 35 years later, Everything is so built up. I mean, when we first came here, even calling, my mum called her mum in the UK, it was something like $2.50 per minute to call. So yes. it would have to be a special event at the end of each month because they couldn't afford to keep calling. Oh, you get those tapes from England. Yes, we did that, that too. Yeah. And you put them on <laughs> and you get Uncle Albert going, is it working? I don't think it's working. So you'd have 15 minutes of, I don't think it's working. <laughs> Do you think it's working? Yeah, it's just hysterical, you know. <laughs> And, you know, going back to that, I think it's really surprising these days how many young people you say and they go, life's going too quick. And we all feel that life's going too quick. But we always had a full stop to the end of the week. Yeah. Sunday was a day that you could only get your petrol. You could only go to the milk bar. Um, there was no supermarkets open that closed at 12 on a Saturday. Yeah. There was no shopping centres. And that's where I think as a society worldwide we're going wrong is, and it's not about religion on the seventh no, day no, no. rest, but it is the something in that teaching about us stopping and really gaining stock of where you are in that week was very important and we miss that. And I think the one positive thing of COVID has done is told us to stop and take stock and what is important in life. And I think most people will say family and being together. I agree 100%. I, I, and I think, um, I think it's really remarkable. I, I'm very spiritual in the sense of the universe and earth and teachings that way i'm not into heavy religion or anything like that i think that's the crux of most people's demise in the world i'm i'm for the fact that the i think the universe has come along and given us 2020 vision in yeah. 20 which is let's calm the farm and let's have a good stock on what's what really is important in life and i found 
that um, I've lived most of my life on my own. I'm now with a partner, which is blessed, but I can watch my friends who are very independent and marvellous at living on their own, absolutely struggling COVID because they usually go out to socialise and come back and thank God I'm single. Um, But I have watched really stalwart people crumble in COVID because it's about being with people and it's about the tactileness and it, it, yeah, it's been a real lesson for us all. And uh, I think one of the biggest things I missed during COVID was having to wear the masks and never seeing anyone smile because yes. you can't, you can smile with your eyes, but it's, it almost looks a bit weird if you're trying to smile at someone with your eyes and they can't see your mouth. But, you know, going through the registers and I would always talk to the person next to me who's buying their stuff. If there was an older person, I'd help them up with their basket. But you even didn't feel like you should do that because you shouldn't touch their basket and we shouldn't touch their stuff. Or, you know, and also hugging people. I, I said to you before we started, I work in a place with disability and mental health. And, you know, most of those participants who come in will give us a hug in the morning and it was like oh no we can't really do that let's do the elbow thing and they got used to it but it still felt a bit like we were not uh, embracing them as we should each morning when they came in no that's right and kids struggled and um la- uh, when covid hit i was looking down the barrel of nothing like everybody because a the industry the arts industry was decimated and was not yeah. supported by our government which is absolutely appalling yet our leader the supposed leader um turns around and says oh the only thing get me through this is listening to tina arena yet uh he wasn't going to support the arts at all um there are some good politicians like tony burke and penny wong and people like that and um kathy mcgowan and really stalwarts that are really pushing to support the arts and tried their hardest but what was interesting was looking down the barrel of no arts, no acting, no no weddings, no celebrant. Nursing, I didn't want to go running into the hospital because yeah. I was older and I didn't know what this was, but it was neighbours that rang me up and said, we want to keep the production going, we've got our protocol, we want to try to open up our industry. And because I had worked on there as a nurse, as an actor and as the medical advisor, would you come on the front line? And I thought anything to keep our productions up, I'm going yeah. to give it a crack. Yeah. So out I went at up at quarter past four every morning out there at 5.30 and people were frightened. So they would come through the gate and have to come past me, Nurse Ratchet, in full PPE. <laughs> and it didn't matter whether you're the executive producer or you were the Danny cleaner, it, <laughs> you had to be passed by me. But what was interesting was watching everybody's mental health through that. Yeah. And then... Uh, after nine months, of course, I was spent and so was everybody. But we successfully did it. Yeah. And we opened up New York, Ireland, New Zealand productions. We got Wentworth final. You know, the, the last bit of Wentworth was filmed. Yep. So I'm very proud of what Neighbours did. But then they, re- they wrote in... Um, more of Vera Punt thanked me, which was great, and I love Vera. But they also had a storyline with two babies, which were very tiny babies. The first one was only three weeks old. 
But because of COVID, we had to be very vigilant and they got me on as the baby nurse. And getting back to what you were saying about masks, these babies only knew us, like we're talking three and a half weeks old, through their masks, yet they could still understand my tone they could still smile, they still knew my warmth, they still knew. And it was just fascinating for us to navigate this, and we still are, Yeah. Um, where the babies, I can walk into that room with my mask on and go, hi, Mary, hi, you know, Juliet, and they light up like Christmas trees because they know my voice. And it's what they've learnt. Yeah. They, they have learnt to understand our eyes and with like occasionally I'll step two metres back and take my mask off because I want them to know me. Um, But it's really remarkable at how you adjust. I think it will be the same if somebody was born blind or becomes blind. Yeah, yeah. What you adjust to and how. And I think it's a great lesson that we can all adjust and we're all allowed to have panic, and we're all allowed to have confusion and elements. I think for me, if I get irate, just let me get irate. The minute you try to dampen me down, I'm I'm like a little shrub fire. I burn out really quickly. Let me just combust. I burn. I get it out of the system. I'm done. But when somebody wants to come in and give you no, you shouldn't think like that or you shouldn't be like that. It, yeah. it dampens you and what that does is keep the ambers burning and that's what rages into a bushfire and that's what you don't want. So I just think, you know, what it taught me last year in watching everybody come through the gate and struggling with it, it taught me incredible tolerance and it made me walk in the other person's moccasins. Yeah. And the one great thing about being a nurse is you can have the worst tosser in the world come in. Like <laughs> if I deal with it as Sally Ann, I'll turn around and tell somebody to pull their net in and get around <laughs> that. But if I show compassion like I do as a nurse, it gives me more compassion. I don't have to like the person. Because I got taught that when I was nursing. You know, you'd have, I had one bikey come in. He's completely, he's completely messed up a guy's life by speeding. His passenger has flown off and she was totally decapitated. Mm -hmm. The old man's legs were squashed to an inch of his life and we had to amputate them. And I had to put him under because he had to be dealt with. And I just wanted to, you know, as a person, you just want to go, you know, I'd like to put the injection in you and say goodbye to you forever. But you can't. You've got to show the same amount of compassion to him as you're putting him under that you do everybody else. And it's great. It's a great lesson in life, I think. Well, look, in my younger days, when I was in my early 20s, I used to work with people with an intellectual disability who had done crime. So pedophilia, murder, rape. Um, And when I first started, I was like, really, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What's going to happen here? Am I safe? Blah, 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 blah. But as the weeks and months went on, you learned that you had to disassociate yourself with the crime they'd done and treat them as a normal person because 
you, you can't, and even though they're horrible crimes, you still have to work with this person and look after their basic needs and teach them and hopefully get them to a point where they do understand what they've done wrong. It's a lot different with having an intellectual disability to, I guess, someone who's got a normal mental capacity, but that taught me a lot of resilience and, you know, to treat everybody as an equal because that's the situation I was in. Yeah, it's like when I was in Sydney training and then I did Prince of Wales Hospital and I was an anaesthetic nurse, that taught me a lot. And then I went to Prince Henry's Hospital and I was the escort nurse to and from theatre on the whole of B Block, which was three storeys. But underneath was the prison ward for, for Long Bay. Yeah. So when I had spare time, they used to always send me down there as extra help. And like you, I had to deal with a lot of different prisoners. Yeah. But what was really amazing when I think about it is it didn't matter what crime they were in there for. If it was a pedophile, they would always be in a separate room and they would all the men would want to kill them, you yeah. know, and you would have to show the same amount of compassion for the pedophile as what you did with everybody else and stay neutral because you had a job at hand which was different. So I understand what you mean yeah. um, about that. And it's, it's it, yeah, it's... It's, it's about inc- putting your own personal, I guess, judgments aside to do what you need to do as your job. You can still have your own ideas of what you like and don't like, but when you're working, you, you have to sort of just uh, become a different person because you have to show the same compassion for everybody. Well, I think COVID has brought that up even more yeah. so. Look at the, the the debate about injections and stuff, and I'll put my hand up. I was a reluctant vaxxer because when that first came out, I went, well, there's no way I'm sticking anything in my arm that's coming out this quickly. But what yeah. they failed, the media and our politicians that are lead, supposed to be leading us at the moment have failed in two ways. When Scott Morrison first came out that first night, and excuse me for swearing, I turned around to my partner and said, we're fucked. Because yeah. the first thing he said was, you don't have to wear masks. Because <laughs> I know that how much masks do protect. Definitely you would. Secondly, he said, it's it's um, social distancing. And I went, people won't understand that. Yeah. People with disabilities won't understand that people that are ethnic or from a different country because to them they're not socialising when they're with their family. Yeah. They, they're with family. If you use the word physical distancing, everybody, whether you've got a disability or a yeah. thing, yeah. and if we can get back to that now and it's physical distancing, it's not social distancing. And then all through last year, it was the debate about when it comes out, what we do, and for Scott Morrison to say it's not a race, well, hello, it was. And also they'd failed to tell us that this was in the SARS family. Now, I remember in 2001 being in Singapore on Oliver and we came out for the first night, the preview night, and that's when SARS hit and everybody was wearing a mask. We fell off of our trainers laughing, thinking this is hysterical. And that's how it remained for the three and a half months we were there doing Oliver. And the coronavirus is part of the SARS virus. Hence why we have got these immunisations so quickly because it's been 18 years in the making. As soon as I found that out, my 
attitude changed dramatically, being a nurse and everything. And, of course, because I am a nurse, I was, uh, you know, uh, the age bracket, you have to ask, have AstraZeneca. No, the only reason why we had to have AstraZeneca is because you brought the wrong ones in. Yeah. And once I was allowed to have Pfizer because yeah. I am a nurse, I rolled up my sleeve and I ha- I did it purely because I'm on the front line. I have to have it as a nurse. I have to have it looking after babies. And my mum is 94 and I want to go and visit her. Yeah. And, and I want to protect the loved ones around me. That's why I did it. And I think if more people know that it's in the SARS virus and this is, you know, nobody wants to put crap in there. No, definitely not. I was like you. Nobody wants to to do it. Nobody wants to put an injection or a foreign thing in, but this is our front line and it it will get us over the line. I truly believe that. Um, how it started, well, that's a whole different. And I don't think we're ever going to know, are we? I think no, it's going to remain. We're never going to know. We're never going to know. But I think you brought up a really important part there. A uh, point is that you said they've been studying it for eighteen years, and I think that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand. They go, "Oh, but they've only just made it. We don't know what it's about." But they've been working on it for eighteen years. It's not like they mm-hmm. just overnight came up with a vaccine, they've been working, working, working. And then when this happened, imagine how many millions or billions of dollars went into finding that final part that then made a, a vaccine that could help us. Yeah, and, and also we need to look at the countries like England who are very proactive with the rapid tests. We need rapid tests. And the fact that this federal government has failed us, and I'm saying it so strongly because I can't believe I just don't understand how we can vote these people in and we've got to wait three years to vote them out on something like this. We need to come together as a nation. It needs to be taken out of politicians' hands. They are not experts. It's It's not a political issue. It is a medical issue. It needs to be on a national body. We need to come together nationally. We need to all have the same rules and we will definitely come out of this stronger. Um, because at the moment it's just a political punching bag and we're the pawns in it and people are struggling and people are, I don't think we know the mental health and the what's going to come our way. I think um, we're going to have a tidal tidal wave of mental health issues. Um, The amount of people that have had to say goodbye and not be there and not had that ritual is absolutely appalling yet. In the same week, like I had a scare last year with my mum and I was in caught up in it and I it was the same week that Anastasia came out in Queensland and said, um, everybody's dying to get into Queensland, wrong choice of words when people have got that situation happening. She's just allowed the footballers in and then our Prime Minister is allowed an exemption to go home for Father's Day. I just had, I'm only a little, little piece of rice in the sand of how people felt about that and the fact that I could not fly to be to my mum's side was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. And I couldn't even go into hotel quarantine. And if I did, you have to go in, you have to pay, and you'd only get two hours with your loved one fully PP'd up. And if 
if they didn't pass in that time, then too bad. Yeah. And unfortunately, that didn't happen for me. But I had, I had an experience that I, I just, I, I'm absolutely appalled at, at how these politicians are dealing with. With it, not not all politicians. But no, no, no. I get where you're coming from. I yeah, mean, look. Yes. On a personal note to what you're saying, my dad um, had a fall uh, in February last year, and um, he was on a medication that was slightly too strong for him, so he was a bit dottery. He was 84. Um, he had to go into hospital uh, for those five days. He was in there. We weren't allowed to enter because we we're in a lockdown. And we said to them, look, if we come in and see him, he's going to feel a lot better. But he worries when he's in hospital that he's not going to come out. And unfortunately, he didn't come out. And they rung us and said, oh, your dad's passed away. Can you come in? So my sister came and got me. And then we went to see my mum. And then they rang us and they said, are you coming? And this was two hours later. And we went, yeah, we are. We were desperate to come in yesterday, but we were told we weren't allowed to. And now that he's dead, you're rushing us to get in to see him, but it's too late. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, there was brutal. no compassion and that's just there. One, no compassion. No. And that's not the, that is not a reflection on the hospital or the thing. It's the way things are. And I really fear for our colleagues at the hospital. You, I don't think people understand how hard it is to watch somebody die of COVID. My friend was on the front line when it first started and only two and two and a half years post um, being a nurse. Yeah. And she dropped to her knees in the shower because they all had to shower out. She dropped to her knees and just was in a puddle of tears because they have all of the skills to save somebody, but you can't when your lungs are like tar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, she said it was just barbaric. And that's and when those nurses say, you know, people who are unvaccinated are, are pleading with them before they go under in that, you know, yeah. the coma. That is real. Yeah, that that is real. So I think we've got to dance with it now, but we need the rapid test to help everybody stay afloat. And people have just got to be sensible and reach out to one another and especially put your hand up if you're struggling. I think that's really important because that's one great thing about Facebook or podcasts or different things. We can get to people before they really make and look, a terrible decision. You know? when, when COVID first started here in the business, I was getting calls from people saying, can you do a Zoom call with someone? I didn't even know what Zoom was. And I'm going, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, can you put some programs up? And I'm like, I don't know what programs we can do because it's a video link. But in the end, what happened was me and my business partner, we came up with doing an online bingo for people with disability, an online disco, an online music trivia, and an online sing-along. And we had... 20, 30 people in each session, you know, and it really changed my outlook because I'd never heard of Zoom before or video calling. No, it was like not promoting anybody, but I found it amazing that Medibank, um, they put out, uh, they got a woman to do meditation free, whether you're in Medibank or not, in the early stages, and that saved a lot of people, yeah. you know, me included, because, yep. you know, everybody was, whew, 
Brighton. Look, we will get there with this. And, um, you know, it's nice to know I've got weddings coming up, um, you know, productions starting up again. But where we used to have to go and get a PCR test, we can't do that at the moment because we don't want to overload it. But we don't have rapid tests, and we should. Like in England, anybody that's disability, disadvantaged um, pensioner, they get sent for seven a week to use. You don't have to use them. And then we've got a prime minister saying, oh, we're going to send you out five that you can use in three months or something, whatever he said. I can't remember. (laughs) It's kind of like, oh, honest to God, Jacinta Ardern, if she was running the world, we'd be in a better place. We certainly would. Would would you want that job? (laughs) I know. Well, look, I had a podcast with someone probably at the beginning of last year and he was saying, isn't she the one that everybody wants in their country? And it is it's true. She's so forward thinking. And maybe it's because she's a bit younger. So she's got more ideas. I mean, I don't know what's happening in Australia. At, at one point, it seemed like we had, I, would, uh, I guess, three buffoons running the world, which was Boris, Trump and Morrison. We can only look at ourselves and do the best we can for ourselves and be as tolerant as possible and call out any intolerance. I'm one for that. I just recently before Christmas, a shocking thing in the post office, you know, and this woman kept reaching across this woman to get stapler and then reaching across to her to get the, the sticky tape. And this poor lady with a mask on kept retreating from this woman. And then this woman had the audacity to turn around and attack her for yeah. her body language, and I just went, hang on a minute, whoa, let's be mindful. You, this is what you're doing, and you're saying, excuse me, after you've done it, and you think that that's appropriate. And then she yeah. had to go, man, I said, listen, love, talk to the hand, but we're all in this together, and all we're asking you is to be mindful. So pull your head in and get out of the shop if you don't like the rules. That's yeah. what, I was a bit of juicy <laughs> Lucy. You know, I was just going to say that. I mean, if you said that to me and I I realised you were Juicy Lucy, I might go, oh, my God, I better stop. (laughs) Season four, act three. Look, we should talk about Wentworth. I mean, from my point of view, I loved Wentworth. I loved it from start to to end. But you had to be one of the favourite characters because I loved the way you had your own little group. You you were sort of like your own dynamic, but you you were always there in the front doing things. You, I mean, you were, I think you were in the most graphic scene on Australian television ever. Mm. Um, they but, call it Tungate, apparently. Tungate, okay. Yeah, yeah. isn't that <laughs> and, interesting? I mean, I, I have a fear of the dentist anyway, and when I saw <laughs> that, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, I've got a history with a dentist. I, like if I've got every dollar that I've spent on my teeth, I'd be a rich woman. <laughs> but, yeah, look, when I first started Wentworth, I was only I was only contracted for five eps in really? Series 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, wow. then I was due to go to – I was planned to go on a big overseas holiday with my friend to Europe. And then they rang my agent and said – my management and said, look, is it possible – would Sal be open up to not going overseas and continuing 
to the end of this series. And so they asked me and I went, oh, well, I've already paid. Like, what do you do? And they said, oh, any out-of-pocket. But anyway, I ended up getting most of it back. Yep. And my friend who used to be our publicist years ago at The Last Laugh, she went, you cannot knock this back. We can go overseas another time. Anyway, so I said yes. And then they wrote, uh, I was in for season three, and then next minute I'm in it for season four, season five, season six. So I ended up getting four seasons out of a character that was only supposed to be in it for four, for five eps. Wow. And I think also I didn't realise that Juicy Lucy wasn't a part of Prisoner, so nobody had a pre-existing memory or Yeah, or idea of how she was. No, so that was lucky because I was actually on Mary Poppins when Wentworth was first muted and I straight away said to my my management, I want to get on this. But because I was in Mary Poppins and that went for three, nearly three years, I just couldn't get out of that contract nor could did I want to go to audition for something that I didn't. That's a real contrast, isn't it, going from Mary Poppins to Lucy Gambaro. Yes. (laughs) So then when I found out that they were looking for the freak, there was a lot of people ringing me up. Um, Tammy McIntosh was one of them who were going, you've got to go for the freak, you'll be perfect. Anyway, my agent at the my management really pushed and they already had the freak in mind. And let's face it, I will humbly say I would not have done it as good as Pamela Rabe. She was pretty uh, brilliant, wasn't she? Oh, look, her choices. But Pamela as an actor is just magnificent. And also Pamela as a colleague is just divine. And um, so... Then, then when they said, "Well, we've got this character," we we not not for the freak, but we do have this character in mind. And I went in for the audition. It was the shower scene when I go, Lizzie, Lizzie. Lizzie's daughter. Oh yeah, 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 Celia that Island. That was that was the that was the audition scene, and I went into the the casting thing and Kevin. The wonderful director Kevin Calvin, he was um, he was there, and I said uh, hi, you know, and he said, right, do you want to put one down straight away, or do you want to rehearse? I'm I'm all for shoot the rehearsal because you never know you might score yeah, yeah, yeah. something great. And we had a reader opposite, so I said to Kevin first, do you want me to go full throttle? And he said, yeah, go for it. Did you just no no holes barred? Just go for it. And then I said to the reader, is it all right if I push you up against the wall? You know, because if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to go for it. And I yeah. wanted her to feel comfortable. She said, yes. So I went, I put it into fifth gear and <laughs> uh, did it. And then when I had her up against the wall, Kevin went, cut. Uh, and then he looked at me and he went, oh, shit. And I looked at her and she's looking white as a thing. <laughs> and I said, are you all right? She goes, oh, yes, but bloody hell, that was good. And then I said, and he says, fine, we've got it. That's what we got. And I went, no, 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 I want to do another one, which I always do. Yeah. And I did. But um, And then 10 days later, I'm on set. And that's how bizarre that was. So it was that quick? It was that quick. And... It was an amazing project to be involved with coming off the back of Mary Poppins being a part of a big 
production. You know, yeah. Disney World, Cameron Macintosh, big production, which was a beautiful show. It was yeah. a magical show. But it was like chalk and cheese, Mrs. Brill versus Gambaro. And then just creating that character was magical, you know. I have to say, with, with when you lose your tongue, I was oh. really quite upset about it. And then I don't think you were in the first or second episode of the next series, but then you came back in and then you were doing sign language or you had a little board around your neck that you wrote things on and you still had that wit of Lucy Gambaro, which you had in the uh, in the series when you could talk because I was just like, oh, but we're not going to hear her talk. But the things you wrote out or did with with your hands were just incredible. Well, before we start a season, we always have a, well, we used to before COVID, we used to always have a um, uh, a dinner out so we could all meet the new characters and whatever. Yeah. And I remember being there with um, Penny Wing and she is such a wonderful lady. I reckon if me and her were at school, we'd get in a lot of trouble together. <laughs> and the, the whole idea well, let's go back to this, the season before. When they actually told me what they were going to do, they called me in and said, look, this is the trajectory of Lucy. Yep. We, we're going to do that. And, of course, I was silent and I just went, oh, well, that's it. She's, that's, that's her gone because I know if you uncut out, you'll bleed out instantly and yeah. not unless you've got somebody with good um medical thing you're you're gonna die yeah um so straight away i went well that's that's juicy's demise and they went oh no 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 we've got bigger and better things for juice <laughs> what we want her to do is come back and fight for her right the prisoner that she is because she's a timer Miss juicy yeah um and we're going to get her to to learn sign language and she has to struggle with the frustration and all. So that to me was just, I, it was so magical. And I said, but we have to get a triaged immediately that this tongue comes out. Anyway, so um, that was it. So when we got to our little um, dinner, Penny was so excited. She said, this is going to be groundbreaking because yeah. we have tortured somebody and then we're going to bring her back and all of that. But then as writers all happens they've got other things it's not not just my character they've got to think about everybody's character well all their storylines had changed but in in their excitement everybody forgot to tell me so i go i go and learn sign language i go and learn all the things i've got ideas and everything and it wasn't until i got on the set and everybody's we've got all these new characters and the other thing is when you're rehearsing, you you allow space for the other person's lines. But because I wasn't talking, all these new young actors were just talking over <laughs> me and now I realised what it was like yeah. to be mute. Yeah. And I ended up tell, speaking about this with um, Sigrid Thornton. Yeah. I was mentioning this to Sigrid and we had scenes together and then she ended up doing it. She went, oh, my God, I've just done what we've talked about. And slowly I realised that they had changed the whole perception of Juicy Lucy and what they were going to do and they forgot to tell me, but, you know, we found yeah. that out and we realised. And I was fine with that because, you know, I I got 
four bloody seasons out of it. I'm not going to sit there and whinge like some acts do. You know, you're just thankful for what you've been given and blessed for the journey. And it was really interesting just being in the background then and you just realise you don't want to be the warm prop. I think it would have been wonderful if we had more time to really get Juicy Lucy back because she would have come back really angry and a vengeance and yeah, all yeah. of that. But, you know, it's a bigger picture you're looking at. And I think, I think what really happened as well is when you did come back, there was more of a warmth to your character because you just weren't so out there and violent, you know. It was because you were in the background. When you did speak or do something, I think we emotionally attached to you more than when you were the previous Lucy with your tongue. I mean, yeah. previous Lucy was brilliant, and I think that you'll go down as one of the main people from Wentworth that people will remember because your character was so in your face when you were there watching that it was like, oh, wow, Lucy's back, you know, yeah. and even though it, you were a horrible character, you were memorable because of what you did. <laughs> One of the best compliments was, I hate you, you're vile, but you just make me laugh and I can't help but watch you. And it was like that. Like she'd, she'd make you laugh before she rapes and pillages you. Yeah. But, but being in a prison, see, I've worked in prisons as a nurse and I've also gone into prisons doing workshops or shows and performed. Yeah. So watching prisoners, there are people who are in there just as a one-off it's just happened in their life. They're in, they're out. You'll never see them back in prison again. Yeah. You'll see uh, people, uh, timers like Lucy, because that's the only structure they've got in their life. Yeah. So they'll always recommit, re-offend to get back in because yeah. they can't They can't actually function on the outside. No, 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 and because they're you, so used to being on that structure. Yeah, and, and you know, so I just think it's marvellous that this show, I think it's great. And I'm, I, Foxtel and Fremantle should be really, like, I, I, I've got every admiration because right at the beginning they were backing a show that was predominantly about females yep. and it was Australian and they really, really backed it. And then look at the global success it's got in yep. over 90 countries, reproduced in five. It's just extraordinary and um, I think, to, I, sometimes I look at it and I can't believe I was on it. You know, well, I just go, I'm blessed. I'll let you I'm into blessed. something. The other day I showed my mum, uh, I think it was your latest photo on Facebook with you having dinner out on New Year's Eve. And I said to mum, oh, who's this? My mum's 81. And she had a look and she said, I'm not sure who is that. I go, someone that you know because you watch the show. And she's like, oh, it's on Wentworth. And I go, yeah. And she goes, I don't know. And then I got the photo of you as Lucy Gambara and said, that's who it is. She went, oh, my God, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my mum will try to watch Wentworth. She watched the first step and struggled. And then the second step, she went, oh, Sally Ann, I if you were a nun in it, because I did late night catechism, I would watch it. And I said, well, if I was a nun in it, mum, I wouldn't be on the show. So don't watch it. My and cousin, Katrina, has never watched Annette because she can't see me in that light yeah and also my friends that used to come around every tuesday i w i wouldn't tell anybody not even my family what was going on yep and they witnessed cutting out of the tongue the same time as everybody else and they i thought i would have to give cpr to doris she was 
in such a – and then I had my friend Julie in tears because she thought that was it. I wasn't ever going to get in this show again. And uh, Colleen Hewitt, who's my mate, she turned around to me and goes, well, why didn't you tell me? I said, because you love the show. Why am I going to spoil that for you? Yeah. You know, I think it's brought a lot of people together and I'm really proud of it. And people saying, oh, it shouldn't have ended. I think all good series need to end. And I think when they extended it by those next two seasons, I think then everybody did come to terms with it. I think when they we found out through the media, I think, oh, it's finished, they've scrapped everything, it's not coming back. That's when everyone was like, oh, I'm not prepared for it. It was almost like losing a friend, you know, because you were so used to going every Tuesday each time of the year to watch those 10 episodes and to know that it was never coming back, it was a bit of a shock. But then as they added the extra two on, then I think people went, okay, well, yeah, it's fair enough, it's finishing. Yeah, and we need, you've got to think, you look at um, the wonderful uh, sitcoms, uh, Faulty Towers, there was only ever 13, the yeah. pilot, and the, yet how it stood the length of time. I really don't like it when series stay on and on and on and it just gets weaker and weaker orange is the new black is something i love but then when it got to fourth or fifth it started to go off the rails it was weird and i think it's better to go out with a bang like this and um you know you didn't ever know there might be spin-offs you know the Lucy Gambaro show. Or Barnsworth. A lot of people went to Barnsworth. I think that's where Juicy Lucy went. I'd love to see who's in Barnsworth. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm about to uh, – I got blessed this year um, because I've just scored – I can't tell you what it's about, but um, I just scored a supporting role in the telly movie. So I'm actually starting that next week. And to start the year as an actor – and not a unit nurse. Not that I, you know, I'm very yep. grateful that I can flip both sides, but to start as an actor on a show that's going to be new and something different is fantastic. So I feel very, very blessed. Can I just ask you about playing Lucy? When you went through all those horrible scenes that you, you had to film, how did you feel when you got home at the end of the day or was it at the end of the week when you'd finished filming for the week? Did you just sort of go home and go, oh, my God, that was so full on or, you know, I feel really drained from what I had to do or were you just it, it was okay because you're an actor and you can disassociate yourself? Nine times out of ten, it's because you're an actor. But the scene when I, uh, well, the boys did, that whole thing about um, uh, attacking and raping um Pam, yeah. in, that was very hard for us all. And yeah. when I say us all, not just the actors, the crew as well. Yeah, yeah. Because when that was first muted, me and Pam were together in the office. And although I know Pam, like we, we, we know of each other, we have never, this is the first time we've been together. Yeah. And they explained to us the raping of and what it was and there was a lot going on in that room and I was just in shock and so was Pam. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Pam turned to me and went, hello, my name's Pamela Ray. <laughs> Pleased to meet you. And I went, hello, Pamela. I was expecting our first scene in a, an MTC play playing something nice. Yeah. You know, 
And then we realised what we had to do. And we both had really serious questions about this because, yes, they can write it and the directors can have their idea of it, but we've got to portray it. And that's number one, I knew Juicy Lucy, there's no way she would have done that. Yeah. And I, and I, I fought for it. And I said, there's no way Juicy would do this because there's never any background on Juicy Lucy and that's what people really wanted but there was no time to yeah, how yeah. she got in there and back. So you've got to create it for us yourself. Yeah. So I, I just created this thing with the writers. I said, I need to talk to the writers. And although we're not going to say this, I've got this thing that Juicy Lucy was um, Catholic. She's been, I'm not saying that you raped as Catholics, but yeah, yeah. understanding the mentality of the religion and all of that. Yeah. Uh, she was Catholic. She she unfortunately had been raped as herself. Something's happened in her life to make her perpetuate all these crimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she wouldn't. Now, Pamela, the freak, is somebody that really has abused women all the way through, whether she's killed them off with drugs, whatever. She's a yeah, yeah, psychopath, Yeah, you know, a real yeah. psychopath. So she's doing this revenge not just for her. She's doing it for every woman, every man. Every person that has ever hurt a woman, she's going in revenge. That psychologically in my mind, that's the only way I could do it. Yeah. And she wouldn't do it herself. She'd get her boys to do it because that's how weak. A bully is always weak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knowing that psychology, I went, she would get the boys to do it. And the boys would want to do it because they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but she would be telling the the freak the whole time the reason why she's doing it and once we got that in in their heads and Pamela agreed it changed the whole thing and I was freaked out because I rang my agent and I went I think I've blown it because I've actually gone to the producers and told them yeah if I'm going to do it I'm going to do I I need this yeah as part of my psychology and you don't want to be that actor but I had to fight my ground yeah yeah as, a person, yeah. an actor doing this, and also for the character. And it wasn't a really big fight. I just voiced it. But I, it was my fear. And next minute I see the producer walk in with the director and they walk towards me in the canteen and I'm thinking I'm in deep shit. Yeah. I'm I'm going to get told, pull your fucking head in. Yeah. <laughs> Not that they say that, but I'm thinking yeah. that. And next minute. I've got Pino and I've got the director, Stephen, going, right, well, we've taken on board what you said and what we've done is we've lied down in the toilet block and we've got a different angle on it. And what we did was we got the camera, we got our, our iPhones and we've taken the camera on an angle like this and we were spooning each other and we got it. And I went, stop, stop. I just want to get the image of the director and the executive producer on the floor, spooning one another, <laughs> trying to get the angle right for Juicy Lucy to rape the freak. <laughs> and they laughed. And they said, no, we want to take that. We understand what you're saying. And that, and it ended up being so much more powerful. And they did it, it in that 100 frames. They did it quickly. It was, see, because I, I say to people, don't show them how to do it. It's more powerful in people's minds if they they have to imagine what's happening. Imagine because yeah. that's what we don't have anymore. 
We yeah. don't have visual. We visually see everything now. Yes. We, and that's why young people don't have imaginations anymore because they can physically see things. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and I thought it ended up being really powerful. But when we shot it, it was a hard day at the office. I got out of there. Me and Pam found it hard. Everybody found it hard. The crew found it hard. We all dealt with it as best we could on that day. We all had utter respect for the moment and the, the, the beautiful empathy of the moment. It was dealt with so wonderful. But I got in the car. I rang my agent and my friend, Ian, and I went, I can't do too many days like this. Like if, if this was Juicy Lucy's life yeah. every day as an actor, I couldn't do it. But I debriefed with him all the way home. Yeah. And um, then when we got in the next day, we, we debriefed again with each other. When it came to the dentist scene, it was a different thing because me and Pam, Pam being the actor she is and me, we would just want to, we want to rehearse it. And so we rehearsed it for Pam and then we rehearsed it for me. We, we did that diligently for two and a half hours, uh, a few days before doing it. And then we had seven hours to do the chair scene. And we, because we, we had rehearsed it within an inch of its life, it was, it was great in that way. And also I did my research because I thought, I want to know if somebody has had their tongue cut out. And I, I just went on the internet and, just researched and I heard this one guy who was in the Middle East who got taken from his family and kept captive for months and months and months and then they were going to release, he thought he was going to die and then they released him back to his family but so that, that he couldn't tell anybody anything about his captives. Wow. They chucked, chopped off his tongue and he said what was interesting was it the fear but when they did it, the the pain and the absolute oh, the way he said it, I, that's what I used for that moment. And I know I did it right because I could audibly hear all of the crew go. <gasps> and when you hear your crew do that, you can have actors coming up to you going, "Oh, that was brilliant! You yeah, did that yeah. brilliantly!" And yeah. that you go, "Yeah, right." Yeah. But on the night it went to air, you must have heard a gasp across Australia when oh, that happened. <laughs> yeah, right. I had my family with me. Why didn't you warn me? I had Doris in tears. I had <laughs> Julie in tears. It was like that. And this is a true story. Five weeks later, I go to the dentist to get my teeth sorted. And in the middle of the procedure, the back of the drill came off and cut my tongue and I oh my freaked God. out. I literally pushed Peter off me. I went, <laughs> fuck me, I'm out of here. I literally had to leave the dentist. I went, this is this is life imitating art. I can't cope. I, I was traumatised. I had to run out of the dentist. I went back yeah. and he was mortified because it's never happened to him before. He was just mortified. And so was Marty, the dental nurse. She couldn't believe it because she was a Wentworth fan. So right. she was traumatised as much as I was that <laughs> this happened. Yes, yeah. But to put it in a dentist chair, amazing. The, the, the writers are just amazing what they did. 
You know? And I think that was the great thing about Wentworth is their story arcs were just perfect. You started here and by the end, everything just fell into place and you were like, oh, my God. So, you know, you saw all these things happening and you were like, oh, my God, this has happened. Oh, my God, this has happened. And then in the very last five, ten minutes, everything just dropped into place and you went, oh, my God. You yeah. know, it was like stories in stories that made one big jigsaw puzzle. And they didn't dwell on something. They moved on. Yeah. That's what you want in a show. You move on, you know. Um, I, I just have great admiration for them, you know. And I really don't like it when actors go, oh, but they're not taking my ideas, they're not taking me this. The fact that the directors and writers allow you some, what do you think about this? Yeah. They might not take on everything that you say because they're looking at the trajectory trajectory of the whole show. They are and all you know? the other cast that are around you. Yes. And the extras and yeah. and all of that, you know, but we were blessed and the crew uh, like all all crew are amazing. I mean say actors are great, but without your crew, you just don't have a show, you know? Yeah. You know? Our crew are very, 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 very important. And um you just there's no show without it. No. Definitely yeah. not. Well, yeah. look, before and you go. Fans. And, and fans. And fans. Yes, fans. If you don't have your fan base, I think crew and fans are it because the thing about Wentworth, I, I can't believe the fans that have met each other on Wentworth, people have got married on Wentworth, people have had babies. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just wonderful. It's It's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And, look, I guess remaking a show, even though it stands completely on its own, um, from comparing it to Prisoner to Wentworth, the original writers and actors had a lot weighed down on them, like, are people actually going to like this? Because we're bringing something that stopped, I don't know, in about 86, 87, and we're bringing it into into modern day. Are the people still going to like it? And, luckily, from that first episode, people were hooked. Yeah, and I think the reason why was we're in modern, more modern times. So your your walls weren't rattling, wobbling. <laughs> but also, they went real. If there was going to be a fight, it was a fight. Like Frankie, uh, Nicola de Silva, what an actor! Yeah, and the way she really, she was so sexy and twisted and that smile. But you would not want to share a cell with her if she's in a bad mood. She was just a mate, like just watching that whole thing, you know. Um, the, the the whole first, when, when you first watched it as a Prisoner fan, I found the first two apps the trickiest because you were, you were getting used to Doreen being uh, yeah, Aboriginal and yeah. all of that, but then you were just sucked right in. Yeah, and I think like with uh, Leah Purcell as well, who played oh. Rita, it was such a great character, a great oh. role. But her fight scenes were phenomenal. You know, yeah, some of those she's ones. She's a fighter. She's a fighter. You know, <gasps> and Christine Clement in the first one, um, that played Will's wife, who played the governor. Oh yeah! What an amazing actor she comes in. She's a gorgeous actor. She comes in. She does that. She gets killed. It in was the first just like, episode. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, I just, 
it was just and incredible. I think that's when people viewing realize that this isn't going to be a show that you can watch and it's just going to continue on for year after year for no. someone like Catherine McClements to be killed off in the first episode you were like wow so it's they don't care who they have to kill off they just need us to be watching and being there with them because this is what prison life is like yeah and look at B Smith going like B yeah. is you know thing but going like that and people going, oh, no. But the point was it was an amazing trajectory, you know. Oh, it was, and, and it really changed the dynamic of everybody there. Yeah, and it was really interesting because the one thing that I went in, the first thing I thought, it's too quiet in the prison. It's too quiet because <laughs> it wouldn't, it's not like that. And then slowly each season it got louder. And then towards the last three seasons, it was what it is like. It's constant. It's constant noise. Yeah. It never, ever dies. You know, you've always got somebody wailing or something's up. And, yeah. Well, can I yeah, quickly no. ask you about your marriage celebrancy? How long have yeah. you been doing that for? I, I, I became a marriage celebrant in 2007. And the reason for it was I was so sick of going to weddings as a singer. Um and seeing bad celebrants, mm. I have to say. Like people just doing this monotone and more so with funerals because I think a funeral is, well, your marriage is a ritual, so is a funeral, and to celebrate somebody's life is a very important thing. But to have a really flat funeral, oh, I just couldn't cope. So I wanted to do something about it and um, I wanted to be a marriage celebrant. So I trained and I was in, it was the the last lot of doing it the old-fashioned way and I studied and um, became a celebrant and I've loved it ever since. And it's just wonderful to be able to marry couples and especially now with the equal, uh, the equality. Oh, definitely. Which, hello, how long did it take this country? And we still got a prime minister today that would love to change it, but no, you're not going to change it. You can't help who you love, or and it shouldn't be an issue. And you know, when that first came through, I was over in England on a meet and greet with Wentworth, and I and I, when the marriage equality came through, I was absolutely elated. And then uh, straight away the next day from the AGO hour instructions came through as celebrants what we do and apart from a few bits of paperwork that changed it was just changing the monotrum instead of a man and a woman to the exclusiveness of all others it was such a simple act it to was do, wasn't it between two people and i yeah. burst into tears at how simple that was and how people over the years had been pushed aside and and I'm just elated. And so now I've got about five I've got to do before April. I'm just wow. so happy. And I've got one that's been put off three times, but I finally get to do it hopefully in Omicron in, um, in um, February. And, and you've also got, got all... the new movie you're working on. Yes, yes. So <laughs> between Neighbours, the movie and my weddings, I'm fine. I don't have to unit nurse for quite a few months, and I'm happy about that. <laughs> I'm getting old. Doing doing 14-hour days on movie sets as a nurse, too much. Stick me on there for 14 hours as an actor, not a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but it's it's a different kettle of fish when you're in the bush and, you know, the arduous work that our crew do to keep things up. I mean, it's, it's okay for us actors. We can pop in our trailer that's air-conditioned. Yeah. You know. So I'm very mindful and respectful of that, but um, I'm really glad. I feel the universe is just supporting me and saying yes. And also um, the, the the charity that I've been involved with for 23 years, the Victorian Actors Benevolent Trust, we we have kept um, – we've done over $175,000 worth of food vouchers to keep food on the table for actors crew in need through – only just in this financial year only, and we we have we're very proud of the 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 committee that all they're all volunteers we're all volunteers but I have just stepped down as president right. um, at the AGM in December, and our new president Michael Fry is stepping up. We're we've got a hiatus of a month off, and then um, I'll stay on the committee. And then slowly I'll step off because I've just um, I want to focus on myself and my family and um, my partner and and my career, you know. Well, look, um, uh, Sally. When we first started talking in the introduction, I said what an inspirational woman you are and all the things you've achieved, and you've just told us everything about why you are an inspirational woman. Oh, I just I think I come from. I'm going to cry a little bit, but I come from stock. Like my mum and dad are just, you get on with it and you do it and you take, I've always been a positive person and I was born, a, my dad reckons I was born a bugger, but God, she makes you laugh. <laughs> I think I've just always had that thing. Um, I think because I had dyslexia and still do as a child, um, like struggling to read and write was hard for me but now I can read scripts and I write weddings and like even my mum always reminds me not bad for a girl who struggled to read and write and that's and I incredible think, I think you've just got to understand if anybody says no to you prove them wrong yeah. you know don't it's like even in the medical world, I hate it when doctors, you know, people get diagnosed with cancer, how long have you got to live? Or, or I'd say six months. Don't tell anybody how long you've got to live. Everybody's journey is different. And I understand the power of the mind. I, I got taught that when I was 20 nursing. There was a young gentleman that came on the ward and he was diagnosed with bowel cancer. He was 32. He was a builder. He was absolutely freaked out. On the Friday, he brought his family in. She was a lovely young lady. with. They had a two-and-a-half-old daughter, and she was pregnant. And he got told he had bowel cancer, and he freaked out. So when everybody left, I went in and I said, look, I was only 20, you know. I go, g'day, I'm Sal. I'll be taking you to theatre on Monday. Now, this freaks you out at the moment, but I'm letting you know if you're going to get a cancer, bowel cancer, this was in the 70s, is a good one to get. Yeah. And he got told he might have to have a bag. Worst scenario is he has a bag for life. Yeah. But they thought that they could get it out and he might have a bag temporary for six months but he wasn't having any of it and they most probably would have told him his sexual drive might have dropped or whatever yeah, but yeah, anyway yeah. he was freaked out i went in on the monday expecting him to be one or two on the list because it was bowel cancer 
and he wasn't on the list. So I took everybody to and from theatre that day and then I popped down to the desk, old Florence Nightingale desk, and I spoke to Sister Paisley and I went, Why, what happened to the guy? She goes, he died. And I went, what? He died over the weekend. I said, what of? She goes, we don't know. We're waiting for the autopsy. Six weeks later, the autopsy came in. There was no, nothing. He didn't have a heart attack. There was no reason for that man to die. And the bowel was located in one area. They would have taken quite a bit of his uh, smaller colon and he would have had, they thought he would have had a bag for about six months, but they could have reversed it. And when I got that back, I still, as a 20-year-old nurse, couldn't fathom what went on. And Sister Paisley, Irish, said, "Hey, day de freight. And that's when I realised, she goes, the power of the mind, you just remember that. And I, and I went, yeah. So he, out of his own fear, he died yeah. at 32 years old and he could have survived and most probably still with us today. Yeah. And that's why I say to everybody, your mind is very powerful and so please, you know, look after it and keep it well as possible and reach out if you need to and, Love the ones you love and piss off the ones that don't. Old Deadwood. <laughs> if people are bringing you down, really choose do, do they need to be in your life. That took me a while to learn that that skill. Yeah. And there are a few people I've had to let go, and I just let them go by saying, I can't be the friend you want me to be. Yeah. You know, I let you go with love and light, but I, I, I can't be – I just don't want that in my life. Uh, On my Instagram page, you know, it's all about positivity and having a great day and stuff. And I usually get comments from people saying, how do you stay positive every day of the week? And I say, I'm not positive every day of the week. I might have a week where I feel pretty crap. But what I do is I've already created those positive updates and I'll just keep putting them out because when I'm putting them out, it actually makes me feel a little bit better myself by reading it. So, but you can't expect to be happy every day because if we're happy every day, we don't actually um, enjoy the happiness. Music is only good as silence. Without silence, you can't have music. And one gift I was given one time when I was going through a really tough time in my life um, I had a friend that died and it was just dreadful. And I, that's when I realised what people meant about the black dog yeah. because it was very much depression. And what I got given was a gift and I'll give it to everybody out there is just have a pen and paper, a little book by the side of your bed. And if you are having a hard time, write at least three things you're grateful for that day before going to sleep. And I did that. And sometimes I repeated the same three things because I couldn't find anything else. But I did that for six or seven weeks, and the difference was remarkable. And I do that from time to time now. If I get down, I will go, what are the things I'm grateful for? And sometimes I would have uh, like 15 things I'm grateful for that day. But just simply writing three things you're grateful for, and it can be as simple as I'm grateful for the air that I'm breathing, or I'm grateful for the fact that I have the right tea bags in the cupboard, <laughs> or I'm grateful for I've got fresh milk, yeah, or I've got fresh undies in my drawer, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, it's just the power of writing and twisting, turning your mind. Your mind is the most powerful tool you'll have in life. 
Definitely. That's what I think. And yeah. I'm, I, I, I've got to be reminded of that. You're great at giving advice, but sometimes I have to be reminded of that. And it's usually my friends boomeranging back some advice I've given them. <laughs> they boomerang <laughs> it back to me. And, and it's I'm good grateful. when you hear that back, isn't it? Because you go, oh, actually, that's what I said to them. Yeah. It's interesting. My friend Dinah Mann, who, who, she's a lovely lady and on, on the committee and just delightful. Um, I, I taught her something. I always teach when anybody goes under anaesthetic, all you've got to do is say, because this is what I used to do with people because I was an anaesthetic nurse, Every hand that touches you is a healing one. I used to say to them, repeat that after me, repeat that after me. Well, she's told a lot of friends and she just said, I've just, my friend in England who's going through chemo, that's what she, that's the mantra she does every time she, the needle goes into her arm with wow. chemo, every hand. And so you just realise that it does permeate and it, yeah, does, yeah. it makes a difference for people. Well, look, I have a mantra with the dentist and when, I, when he starts <laughs> working on me, I actually lay back, I close my eyes and because I, I've had a bit of gagging in the past, he'll do like 10, 15 seconds and then take out and I swallow and then he starts again. But if ever I start to feel a bit nervous, I always say the dentist is calm and relaxing and I just say it in my head yeah. and then I just calm down completely. That's, that's it. You've got you've to gotta twist. You've got to twist. And also tapping is really good because the great thing about tapping, and if people don't know what tapping is, you can you can Google it. It's, it's easy. But tapping, when you're tapping, it's not about saying, I shouldn't feel this way, like I'm tapping now. I shouldn't feel this way. It's like if you're, if you're really distressed, you just go, I am so distressed at the moment. It is driving me nuts. You, you actually speak what you're feeling as you're tapping and you do the rounds and slowly – because at the beginning of tapping, you put your hand on your wrist and you go to a place that you really, really love that's tranquil and beautiful for you. That can change, whatever. And you say, what's your anxiety level in this place now? It's usually about a 7 or a 9 or it could be a 10. Yeah. And then after tapping, you go back to that place and it slowly dissipates. Once you get under 5, the difference in your body is extraordinary. And you can tap anywhere on planes. Yeah. You can tap while dealing with a difficult person. You don't have to sit there tapping in front of them. You can be just doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just being mindful. And also if anybody does come at you and is, is, a, is a difficult person or a nasty person or somebody you're working with, I always say to people, make sure they'll always come in on your right side. Oh, no, sorry, on your left side left, yeah. because that's your heart side. You watch. Anybody that's difficult will always approach you on that side. So all you've got to do is turn your body so they only come at you on your, your right, right side. and that protects your heart. And in just doing that, it's really interesting because people will they'll try to con congregate back round onto your left side <laughs> and you just keep altering it. You know, it's really powerful. It's just that powerful thing to do to protect your heart is is really a great gift, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, look, um, do, if people want to find you as a celebrant, do they just go to your social media on Facebook or Instagram? Yes, on Instagram or they can go 
Sally Ann Upton. Anne is with an E, no hyphen in that. Sally Ann Upton dot com dot au and just reach me through my website which i'm actually updating at the moment so i'll be launching that i mean say it's still there people can still get to me um that way and you know if fans want any autographs or anything like that they just send it to my representation and we can do it that way but in saying that people have got to understand you can only sign an order. It's best just to send a stamped address envelope yep. in the thing and an A4, and I'll provide the photos or if you're going to provide the photos. But what what I find extraordinary, and this has just happened to me with a fan, was it they requested autographs and specifically to a certain person, and there was two of them, and it was in COVID. So I arranged with my agent to go in to their office, and it was because we were in lockdown. They went to their homes so I could go into the office to do the proper protocols. When I was in there, I couldn't find the right pen and I wasn't about to go and rummage in my agent's drawers. <laughs> so I picked up a biro and I did it, but it didn't work as as well correctly. as usually. So yeah. I took painstakingly took my time <laughs> and then I individually wrote a note to them. I then put it in the thing, sent it off, went down the post office. This is what I did, and I sent yeah. it off only to have this person attack my PA verbally and on emails and still doing it, saying that they have they have checked with other people overseas, got them to send photos of theirs, and it's legitimately not Sally Ann that did it. So they're questioning my integrity and my agent's integrity. And we have written back saying, well, no, that's not true. This is them. And they're still now requesting me to redo them with photographing me (laughs) signing them. (laughs) The first time I am saying, if you're out there listening to this and you're that person, you're not getting them. No, I mean, look, anyone should be grateful for whatever they get from you can't tell you the work that we did to do that i am appalled yes it's in biro but you didn't say do it in a pen and it was handwritten to you and your friends i'm absolutely appalled well look hopefully now they've heard it and they'll realize and they'll go wow actually sally ann just said that she actually did it for me and you won't hear from them again well, I sent a private message through my PA to say that I've done it, but this is their request now. Yeah. Well, no, sorry. I've got, I prefer to, no, no, sorry. It's the same as trolls. You know, don't block them. Oh, yes, you do. What if it's a bully, you block. Yeah. You, uh, no, 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 
No. Well, look, Sally Ann, I have absolutely enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> We've gone longer than I expected to go, and you've just given us so much information. And I don't, I don't think you'll mind me saying this, but before we went on, you were saying about someone else had just written a book, and you weren't sure whether you should or not. Well, you definitely should, because. Oh. The hour and a half has gone so quickly and we've covered so much of your life and there must be so much more that you haven't actually divulged at this point. No, like seriously, I feel blessed because of the different things that I've done in my life. And um, I, I, like my, my friend said to me, it would be a, a big chunky Bible to do it. <laughs> like um, um, what's that that famous book, um, uh, the... I can't remember, but it's like something like a th- uh, 2,000, 3,000 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> I want to write my one-woman show and I'm finding that difficult because what do I talk about? I did a little, before COVID, I went down to Phillip Island to the, the, the story festival and I did it with Denise Scott, my darling friend, Denise, and I did my own thing and I was really worried about it because I haven't done stand-up for years. It wasn't stand-up, it was my story. Yeah. And Denise came to my one and she didn't tell me because she knew I'd be nervous. And she said it was just delightful and it was just great. You need to do a woman's show. And I thought, well, that took me 45 minutes just to do that story. How can you do how can you do a whole show? Like Well, look, if we've spoken for an hour and a half, and I know there's one little bit that we missed out, which was when you were on the boat when you were a 10-pound pom, you actually sang a song. It was the first time it was, I'll leave you with this, it was the first time I sang live and it was Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore, and I was placed on a stool and I was only six and all all of the kids were on a V and they were rowing. And be, and soon as the blackness, the, the lights went down on the audience and the light came up on me, and that's the first time I felt a spotlight on me as a, yeah. as a, a person. And I fell in love with its power and its glory. And I started singing Michael Rowe. I missed the first verse, then I went back to the first verse and I kept singing because the joy of being in this light, I didn't want it to end. My sister and my cousins are rowing like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> my sister reckons she rowed us all the way to Australia. And the only way they could shut me up was by bringing down the, the light. <laughs> and that's the first. That's the first feeling of the spotlight. And I have never looked back. I, I, I remember it so vividly. And... Um, yeah, Michael rode the boat ashore. And look, I also I also remember you singing Mustang Sally during lockdown because yes. I've seen it on Facebook and it was really good. <laughs> well, Mustang Sally is my staple. Everybody loves me singing. And when I go to Fiji, I actually sing it in Fijian. Wow. Um, there's a Fijian verse that fits. It's not it's not Mustang Sally, but Ruitotoka fits into um, um the Mustang Sally. So when I sing in Fiji and then I burst into Ruitatoka, the Fijians just love it because, wow. yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah. See, so during our conversation, you've proven that you can do a one and a half hour one woman show if you had to, because just that information and anything else that you haven't told me would enthrall the audience, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
I think if I did a one-man show now, I think I w- I think I'm confident enough to think that I would get a bit of an audience. Oh, you definitely. I might would. only have a fifty-seater, so <laughs> it looks full every night. <laughs> but well, with wearing I'd masks, like we have it. to be a seat apart anyway. Love, I I've wanted to do it for I wanted to do it when I was fifty, and Judith Lucy has been on at me for the last decade to do it, and so now I'm in my my 60s i'm actually 60 now um i definitely will i want to do it i want to do it and i think look do do one and then you can come back and do another one and more and another one but yeah definitely well look i mean i'm so happy that you came on because it's just been it's just been a beautiful conversation so much that you've done that i didn't know about and talking about wentworth and talking about COVID and your early life it's just been amazing thank you so much and i think too daniel your podcasts are very important anything to do with mental health and i know people go oh mental health mental it's just that we know about it now but we do have to get on with it. You can't do well on mental health. You've got to move through mental health. You've got to be productive. There's no use to sitting there going, I've got mental health issues and I don't do anything about it. If people do that, I, I get really irate with them because you can do something about your mental health. It's just different degrees and different levels and you've got to have a realistic expectation and never do anything for other people. It's got to be for yourself. And um, I think having podcasts like this and putting out positivity and real stuff, there's no use saying you've got to get on with life or you've got to be happy. We're all not happy. In a a day you can have a thousand feelings. You can feel up in the beginning of the day and feel like you want to, you know, go go out the back and, 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 you know, cry into your soup. Yeah. (laughs) And that's why I think these conversations are important because people are learning from you about what you've done, but also your positivity, how you've changed from one job to another, how you've kept yourself going. You know, they're all things that sometimes people can be sitting at home and go, oh, well, I don't know what to do next. Listen to this podcast and you hear that you started off as a nurse, you became an actor, uh, you're now doing um Uh, marriage celebrancy you know there's lots of different things we can do but a lot of people think they're stuck in the one job and that's all they can do for their life or that's all they should do for their life but if we just keep learning and changing you find that your life is so colorful absolutely and that's what COVID has taught us like all of you out there now understand what it's like to be a performer because your your instabilities is exactly what we've got to do people say well why do you do it it's because it's a vacation and it, it gives you creativity and you learn to fail. The art of failure is so important. Yeah. And stop having this thing of entitlement in the youth, you know. Listen to people. Listen to the youth. Listen like there's some great young people, you know, but when people that are young feel entitled and don't understand the art of failure. No. We all fail. You've got to fail. You'll get your biggest lessons in when you're not succeeding. And that's exactly the point because if I remember when I went to school, if you didn't come first, second or third in a race, you didn't get a, a ribbon for it. But then when you did the next year or the year after get a third place, you were like, wow, I've really done well. But nowadays exactly. everybody gets a ribbon just for being yeah, in the no, race. No, it's the same as pass the bloody parcel. I did my friend's six six-year-old birthday party and I get to pass the parcel and I wrap it up 
And she's saying, oh, no, we've got to unwrap it because in every layer there has to be a prize for the kid. And I said, no, <laughs> no. And she goes, oh, no, because the, the parents. And I said, well, bring the parents to me. And sure enough, we did pass the parcel and every unwrapping, the kids' faces dropped and, whoa, whoa. And I went, whoa, 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 wait till the end because that's what pass the parcel is about. Yeah. And, of course, at the end, whoever gets the parcel, which is usually the birthday person, it is a big bag of lollies because guess what? We teach them to all share. Yeah. That's it. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I had one mother wanting to have my guts for garters because her kid didn't. I said, pull your head in. <laughs> cope. It just drives me absolutely insane. This is why in America they have schools for failure because kids come out of school and then they've got to go and learn how to fail. You know, we all have to adapt. We've all, it's fluid. Yeah. That's what Buddhists teach you, and nature and nature, things constantly changing, constantly changing. We've got to have change in our lives because it changes all the time. We don't know how long we're going to be here. It, you know, I want to go into my grave with skid marks on my pants going, gee, that was a good ride. <laughs> I don't want to be, oh, oh, gee, that was nice. That was nice. <laughs> you know, I want to go sideways into that uh, big juicy gambaro side. Yeah, fine. You know, you've been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Well, you take care, everybody, and listen. May two thousand and twenty-two be a corker for us all. We'll learn to dance with this, and uh, yeah, just take one step at a time and look after each other. I reckon. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other, and thanks for listening.